This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In Rocketing to Fame, Becky Manawatu talks to Lynn Freeman about her meteoric rise to fame and how it has affected her approach to writing and to life. Presented by the University Bookshop. No mai, haere mai, toti mai. Becky and I welcome you to our conversation here at the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The session is sponsored and presented by University Bookshop. Uh, making sure that your phone is turned off is a really, really good idea. All right, thank you very much. I'm Lynn Freeman, host of RNZ National's art show, Standing Room Only. Uh, a couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours sent me an email about a brand new novel by her journalist friend at the Westport newspaper. From memory, there was a photograph of you in the back of a car and cartons of books. Uh, the author was Becky Manawatu. Needless to say, I was very grateful to our friend Teresa for the tip. Reading the book ahead of our interview, I was gripped and astonished and heartbroken. I could list all Awe's qualities, um, but I'm sure you've read the novel, so you know them. And certainly judges and critics have done a very good job in assessing this important book's qualities. Becky is also, lucky Dunedin, this year's Robert Burns Fellow at the University of Otago. I believe it's rare for a writer to be offered this so early in their literary career, and that speaks volumes also in itself. Becky, we met in person in November at the paper, which was mm. just lovely to see you in your natural habitat <laughs> before you came to Dunedin for the fellowship. And you were kind of in the midst of logistics and how is this going to work and your whanau and your, and your job. How's it going? Kia ora, <laughs> Kia ora everyone. Um, it's going, it's going um, amazingly. Yeah, I'm ruined for real life now. That's, <laughs> that's what I've, <laughs> I've figured mostly is that now I can't go back to <laughs> having a real routine, even though I've made sort of a routine for myself. Um, my kids have come down to Dunedin with me, and um, se- so my son's 17 and my daughter's um, 12. So that was a big ask of them, but they're um, really good at uh, adjusting. I've, I've done it a bit, and, a, and, and I'm... I'm good at helping them adjust. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually love your acknowledgements in Aue, and I was rereading it today, and you thanked the children mm. for the fact that, that there were sacrifices on their part mm. um, for you to, to be able to write your novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah, yeah, there were. Um, my son got good at cooking eggs, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think just... Yeah, just, I mean, I don't don't even know what I'm I'm going to get to at this point. But they <laughs> they are they are amazingly um, interested in what I'm doing as well, and supportive and and love it in a in their own little way. It's yeah, they they're, they're supportive and. Well, I remember watching the video of you when you won the the um, Ockham, 
and they had the Zoom. It was the mm. first time they tried to do Zoom. I can't say it went very smoothly, really, <laughs> for the award ceremony. Just as we came out of lockdown, you might remember. It was, it was quite yeah. funny and retrospective. But uh, your whole family, your whole whanau were around you, and their faces just lit up. And to me, that was like the moment of the night. Yeah. That you were genuinely mm. uh, astonished, and your, your family were just so happy for you. Yeah, they were. It was actually quite a hilarious scene, if you had have seen a minute before that. So my dad was sat in one chair because we lived at my dad's place and my husband was actually further away from me and he um, and so they announced it and my husband leaps out of the chair and he's like, yeah! And then he just, dad's already stood up ready to come over for the big hug as he should get the first hug. It's my dad. <laughs> but... My husband, being a rugby player, somehow managed to sort of come in and <laughs> lift me up. And <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit, was a little bit like almost awkward because I could see Dad being a, Dad was a bit pissed off about it. <laughs> um, did you come? I imagine you did with a firm plan for what you wanted to write in this year in in Dunedin. Um. Yes, because I'd already started. So I already knew what I wanted to um, work on, which is um, a, a second novel and connected to Aware. So um, uh, I had probably 30,000 words written when I arrived, and I cut that down to I cut uh, 20,000 words away pretty much the first day I got into the... So it was like I'd written to lead up to the point where I would um, actually start, but I knew what I was hoping to write. Hmm. This is, I, I, I know most um, authors hate it when people ask about a work that's in progress, but what, and we may, spoiler alert, um, have, have an insight into, into what you're writing, Becky, but, but what is the, the story? How, how linked is it to Owe? Um, it's... One character, so um, Auntie Cat, I'm focusing from her uh, point of view, but that will bring in other characters. And I was thinking about it today. It's like I feel like I have to write something connected to that novel because there was more work to do. And, and there always is. Writers say that they... they um, could never, that sometimes you could never be finished, you know. Um, but I just still have something that I need to do with um, with Oe, and it's almost like I felt like writing Oe was like a sort of a breath out, but I've realised it was more like a a breath in, and now I want to have the breath out. <laughs> That's a really weird. I don't think that makes sense, but I don't. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> well, this has been with you for a long time because I was re- reading recently that really you even OA had a very long gestation with mm. you. And given that it's so off home and so close to you, I think you were overseas when you really first started thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I was. And I think that's we were actually just talking about this in the um, while we were having, I was having a lot of snacks in this little room back there. <laughs> um, that sometimes distance helps you um, 
write about something. So being away from home, then it, the distance made it made it easier, I guess. Yeah, and now I'm sort of based. Some of this story is actually coming to the west coast, um, which um, is probably easier because I'm down here at the moment. But yeah. So is the writing going well? I mean, if your first if your first effort was cutting out twenty thousand words, <laughs> how's the word count looking? <laughs> um, I'm up to about sixty thousand words, but I think that's got like I don't. I'm sort of I'm a writer that tells myself the story as I go. So I may be um, I'm sort of telling myself this story, and it may lead me to the beginning. I don't I don't like to where I should start from. At this stage, I wouldn't say that, oh, 60,000, I'm only a wee way off having a novel finished because I don't see, it doesn't feel like that. Where when I wrote Oe, when I was a, close to, when I was at that point, I could feel that I was coming to, so I don't feel that yet, but I'm enjoying writing. But I don't feel like I'm two-thirds of the way through a novel. I really still feel at the beginning. So, so you, you're one of the writers who kind of lets things take a natural course and your characters work with you on the script. You're not one. I, I have been to some studios where it's post-it notes and it's all mm. arrows and circles and it's all very planned from start to finish. Mm. And they, they get comfort and that is the best way for them to work. They know where they start. They know where they finish. Even if they don't write it in that order, yeah. it, it's not quite fully formed, but it's sort of there. But for you, do you, do you like to breathe, as you say, to just see what happens? Yeah, I do. And because I think, um, I, don't, I, would, I feel like if you were to write a novel knowing exactly what was going to happen, it would be like reading the novel of the movie you just watched, you know? Like, to not know is part of the point of stories. And it's the same for for some writers, not all writers, but for me... It's part of um, enjoying story is to watch it happen and be surprised and let your characters um, do th- sort of escape you a bit and then they're a bit ahead of you sometimes and then you're like, whoa, <laughs> what are you up to? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so pleased you're taking up. Auntie Cat's story, actually, because, I mean, she was a strong presence in and, and that first story, but she went through so much, mm. as did most of your characters. You, you know, they, they, they went through a lot. But she, she did, and at the end of it, she's really going to have to almost start again, isn't she? She reconsider what's happened and, mm. and really catch her breath yeah. and figure things out. So, so she clearly demanded more time. Yeah, and also I think because Auntie Cat in Owe was quite, um, she was silenced within this relationship. And so you don't, you, you got a little brief idea that she was someone else before that started. And I wanted to, you know, in the end is, is I won't ruin the end in case any of you haven't read it, but um, at the end she's in a really hideous, grotesque sort of situation and I just um, I want to give some context into how it got that far, yeah and um, and and give more um, 
more of her. Let her speak a little bit more, because, I mean, not a little bit. A lot more, yeah. I mean, it is difficult, and even from the media's point of view, sometimes there is very little sympathy. We get texts and emails when we do stories about battered women and and family violence and and a a lack of sympathy. Well, why the hell Mm. did she stay? Or why didn't she see? Sometimes Mm. it's not seeing. Mm. It's a defence mechanism. Yeah. And I remember even here with one of your other, with the other characters, one of the young women who's in an abusive relationship, saying, well, when he said sorry, that's the nearest thing to, mm. to love, you yeah. know, him showing and saying love. Mm. That really got me that line, actually. Mm. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's not, um, I think, yeah, it's not a simple, it's, it's never simple how, how people end up and women end up in situations that are um, like Auntie Cats. Yeah. And even though it was quite physical um, at the, within this uh, within the novel, but it, it's only that's that period where um, Arama has come to live with Auntie Cat. So it's actually quite a brief time and, and I want to bring in the lead up and that this was actually, you know, um, the the result of a, a lot of uh, pre harnessing of her, or yeah, removing of her her self esteem. And mm. how, how do you when you're dealing with such deep emotional? I mean, trauma. I mean, the trauma throughout this book. How do you protect your yourself as a um, as a writer? Because this, this comes from your heart. I know this comes from your heart. And we can cry and weep and, and worry reading it, but you've, you've written it. You've kind of lived it as you've written it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that... <laughs> so within the story, it, it does move a lot from dark to light. So that was protective for me in a way. And I was also... Um, so there was a protective layer already... Th- through the book um, for me and I hoped for as many readers as I could and, and perhaps for some readers I I've, I've could have failed them that it wasn't necessarily as much protection as there could have been but mostly I think the movement from light to dark was my protection and storytelling is also um, I just feel better anyway when I'm telling a story so yeah. There must be some of those chapters. Um, I mean, the, the uncle's actions, you know, we're being a little bit careful for those who haven't read fully, but, you know, that kind of brutality mm. and, and cruelty, you know, trying to describe that. Mm. I, I, I'm sure it must have taken some kind of toll, or not toll, but, you know, it must have impacted on you somewhere along the line, you know, those, those really bleak moments. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really realised that until after, so I went into a bit of a downward crash afterwards, so yeah, but that's 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 what I, what I mean, I think that might have been what I meant when I said about it being kind of a, a breath in and then this is hopefully a breath out the next book.
Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much hope there too. I mean, mm. don't get me wrong, there is too. Yeah. Um, well, I, look, I, we were going to do a reading for you. We, originally, we were going to go from OA, but we have something new. So from the new book that we were discussing, it's a draft. I mean, for context, it's yeah. early draft? Early draft. Early draft. Very early draft. Work in progress. This is really exciting. I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it. I've never read it out loud either. <laughs> so <laughs> if I stumble on this is actually good for... For me, you know, this I'm just practicing. You turn this into a, a writer's group, you this know, is, we could give you feedback if you like. This is, oh my God, I didn't do it properly. Didn't you? No. It's all right. Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, no, there it is. It's okay. <laughs> I was just searching for the story in the green room. I'll, I'll explain that little joke. Um and it took me forever to go through my emails and find, because I'd emailed it to myself, and I just thought that I hadn't actually, so I'd have to do that, that which wouldn't have been very cool to you guys. But <laughs> I would have told them my life story in two minutes. <laughs> um, so the, the working title is Papahoa, which is the um, mountain range, which is uh, uh, near where I grew up, but it's just a working title at this stage. Oh, that's quite small. <laughs> I, I, I was very admiring of you, how yeah. tiny that is. Yeah. Are my glasses? Could I? Yeah, let me try. <laughs> I'm long-sighted, good luck. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's going too far. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'll be all right, I'll be all right. Yeah, I'm just going to do it like this. This is... I feel like this is quite risky, but someone, a, a kind friend told me that this moment is very fleeting, so it's not, not to matter. <laughs> um, it was not only pain or death the woman feared when she considered leaving the man, but being flayed for sport, being outed as not only flawed but hideously so, culpable even, having at her weakest moments survived a life by deriving some shameful pleasure and cruelty too not only feeling it, not only having wallowed in it, but having entered the hellish realm of active participation. It was fear of any one of her secrets, her many angsts and insecurities, the ugliness she had unwittingly revealed to this man, being used as a fuel which halted her, unpacked her bags for her. Together these were a perfectly crafted fuel, a singularly owned resource, packing enough heat to scorch her life to ash and crust and scar tissue, to smoke... A fire so hot it would burn anyone she loved, anything she cared for. More than pain, more than death, she feared the aftermath of that fire. She imagined a vast and scathing dryness. Cat could use a can opener, and even though the man, rather than she, is dead now, she does not. She uses a knife to open cans of tomatoes, peaches, creamed corn, baked beans... Sometimes the can she needs the goods from have lids like Fresh Up, Fanta or Coke. These cans can be opened with a hooked finger and a quick peel of tin. Sometimes they can't and she must use her knife. Today she takes up the serrated vegetable knife, ploughs it into the tin of peeled tomatoes, drags the toothy blade across, up, down, across, soaring a semicircle, folding upwards a half moon of ragged silver to find the red wet pulp beneath the torn tin and the bright fruit suddenly makes her wonder how the inside of her wrist might look, despite having been happy, almost elated to be making bolognese, <coughs> bolognese 
for dinner when she first took up the small tool. She has used her knife rather than the proper utensil for opening cans since April 18, 1994, the day the now dearly departed Stuart Johnson threw the proper utensil across a kitchen, not directly at her, but also not not directly at her. It spun by her head so close her temple felt like it puckered. Her brain shrunk away from the walls of her skull like half an orange having its juice squeezed from it. It shattered a glass window behind her to pieces. It exploded out into the day and the can opener landed in a patch of grass outside his house. After she moved her stuff in, it went from being his house to his house. She didn't know it was a can opener which tore by her skull until shortly before lunchtime. <clears throat> it was shortly before lunchtime when she made the choice to open a tin of creamed corn and make toasted semis for this man. She wanted to make things right. She was, after all, somewhat culpable. She searched the drawers for the can opener. She checked the sink, pot cupboard, junk drawer, even went to the shed and looked in the man's toolbox because he'd hidden her mascara there once, her F-postcard another time, and her treasured photo of her dead brother another. But she did not find the utensil. Alone in the house, she ransacked the kitchen. So that day... A can of creamed corn before her, the window still smashed, letting in a cold autumn wind, she took up a serrated knife and drove it into the tin, and the tin turned to bone and the yellow mash inside turned to brains, and those brains were specifically the man's brains, and even when she had the tin open, she could not stop going at the matter. Then she threw the knife, made a fist, and thumped it. When he came in the door, into the kitchen, dirty boots still on his feet, she set the sammy on the table, and while he was... So I've, missed, I've, I've actually gone through a bit because I've missed the part where they, she toasted the sandwich. <laughs> <That's all right>. <laughs> <laughs> that was helpful. See? <laughs> I want to finish on a decent sentence, <laughs> but we could just leave it there. We can leave we? it there. Thank you. Yeah. That was... That's a draft. Holy. What did you learn, Becky, do you think, from writing Owe about the craft of writing a novel? I mean, you've got all the, you know, this experience in journalism, and we'll explore that in a, in a moment, but did you learn something of the, the novelist's craft, do you think, from that first one? Because they say that the second book is the tough one. Yeah, I think it's definitely tougher. I've learned things, um, for sure, about the craft of novel writing, um, I, I felt more sure of myself and I don't feel as sure of myself now. And But that's okay because I'm still... That's not a terribly sad thing because I'm still happy to write, so writing's still okay. <laughs> but it's probably a little bit surprising that I've lost some confidence. <laughs> but just from reflecting on, yeah, storytelling and how important it is to... Um, be accurate and try and do well for people you're you're writing for. Mm. You're, you're also, of, of course, no pressure, but you're also in the situation of your debut novel being s- s- such a sensation. You know, to, it's almost unheard of, not quite, but almost unheard of to take out the top fiction prize as a first-time novelist and the, the Nio Marsh, you know, and the, the accolades and the reviews. I imagine that... You, you're aware of expectations 
amongst us mm. being high because th- this was such a thrill to read. But of course, it's kind of on you. I mean, do mm. you think it, in a way it's a delight? I know, but maybe it's a bit harder because this was such a, a massive um, success. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think definitely more aware of audience this time. So I wasn't as aware. I was just making myself feel better while writing. Not always feel better because often it didn't make me feel better. But but I also wasn't sure that anyone would ever read it, you know. And now I know for for sure I will. My publisher will definitely read this. <laughs> you know, she's <laughs> she's going to read it and. Um, I don't have to worry about that, and that's that's quite a nice thing. Yeah, but I'm yeah, I am much more aware of audience and making doing something good as again. Yeah, I love the description again and the acknowledgement that you hand delivered your manuscript for OA. That was really important to you. Why was it so important? Um, because I just wanted. I knew I'm I'm not a big fan of emailing. I ha- I I. I once I get to see someone, I just feel different about them, and um, I just thought, well, if I just email it, she might not remember me or care. And I was going to to Wellington anyway. I couldn't remember. I can't remember why, but we were there, so I, I thought I'll just drop it in. I'll make her look at me. <laughs> <laughs> The title of this, uh, I've been skirting around it in a way, is, is Rocketing to Fame, because you are one of the most humble people that I've ever met, actually. And uh, and you've written a little bit about this and spoken about it, but, I mean, the success is is brilliant, but the, it comes with it, not, not imposter syndrome, perhaps, but, you know, you've been struggling a little bit, I think, with, with emotions. I think the Nio Marsh, well, you weren't even expecting that. You didn't see it as a crime novel, no. you know, which is a broad church. Mm. So how have you handled all that a- a- attention and analysis, you know, and focus and media events and things like that? It could be overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah, in the beginning it was quite scary um, because I still felt really attached to the novel, like in a way that almost felt like if you criticise my work, then you're ba- you've... It felt so... I, I was afraid because I felt like I had folded parts of myself in it, and and now it, there's some distance, and I think I feel a little bit more um, relaxed about that. Um, what was the actual original question? Yeah, well, just, just, <laughs> handling fame. I mean, actually handling that kind of attention, that kind of fame. Oh, I don't. That, it <laughs> kind of makes me want to laugh a little bit because uh, it's a healthy reaction. <laughs> my my family definitely is just you know they. Uh, it, I just don't feel like that's really true. And they keep it grounded. Well, it, I mean, it, it actually is. I mean, your your name was in highlights. You were all you know when the awards came out. You know, your name is known yeah. now. And I actually am on the back of a bus. I know. <laughs> we're going to hang out at the bus hub so we can see it because we haven't seen it yet. Someone said that, but I got sent a Snapchat from one of my friends, and they were behind the bus, and they saw it, and there was my photo because the lovely Dunedin Writers Festival. Did that, but I now I need to find that bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, when uh, the book first came out, before the awards, 
Were you reading the reviews? Are you a writer who reads reviews or doesn't read? Well, I had. I was. I was not a writer who knew anything about what, what you should do or what you shouldn't do. So I was definitely a writer who would read the reviews. <laughs> yeah, and I had some beautiful reviews. And yep, and uh, there was some fair criticism as well. And um, at first, that was quite um, hard, like it was quite early. It felt early. It might may not have been. But um, like I said, I felt like my heart was still in the book or, you know, but I still look at that, I look at that now differently and I feel like it was fear and it's okay, you know. Um, and I'm not going to read reviews ever again. <laughs> I used to look at even Goodreads. I'm so ashamed about that. Like, don't do that. If you ever write a book, don't look at Goodreads. Oh, really? Like, they're f- mostly, I've uh, not seen too many, anything bad, but I mean, it's just a weird thing, Goodreads, I think. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I've, over the years, there have been a few journalists who have uh, wanted to write the great New Zealand novel. I think even I dreamt of it very briefly years back. Uh, and they've been really well-written books, you know. I mean, do you think journalism has been a good um, background for you for writing a novel? I mean, it's, it's, people might think, oh, well, you're writing. Of course it is. But writing journalism is different to writing mm. a novel. You know, we're trained for different things. There's the inverted triangle, so editors can cut from the mm. wherever they want to. You know what I mean? It's, it, I, I think it's vastly different. How did you find it? So I have to make a confession that, I mean, people think that I have really this grand background in journalism, but it's not true. So... <laughs> I came to journalism with a full draft of Aware behind me and I went to the Westport. So my family and I were moving back to Westport. I looked on the trade me to see what jobs were going in Westport and there was one at Stockton and there was one at the Westport News and I have no journalism training. So um, I hoped... I just thought I will make I'll apply for that job because I can't frickin' drive a truck at Stockton. <laughs> <laughs> so I applied for the job and as it happens, Lee Scanlon, who's the chief reporter there, she's um trained many a journalist and she's also that's how she entered journalism herself, by learning on the job. So I think that I I think that what it did for me more with writing aware was that I was um, I was used to being edited by that you know like because I had this first draft already and then it did help me in the process of doing my own second draft and my own third draft um, but I didn't come at it from a journalist point of view so so it's more like how writing a novel can help you become a journalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the way round. Though my my um my edit uh, my the chief reporter probably would say no. <laughs> no, she didn't. She she had to she had to work with me. You know, it was work for her. But she said I was all right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots. I mean, the, your dialogue. I was rereading. Just reminded me how how spot on. It is, and as journalists, of course, we're trained to listen to people. You know, and you you talk to people from a whole range of 
of paths of life, you know, and, and as a novelist that's probably just something you already had. But how do you find the dialogue? Like when we were writing um, from Arama's uh, point of view, this insecure, lonely, we scrap of a chap, mm. you have his voice so well, you know, and it's not, the, it's not what you expect, it's not childish, it's not stereotypical, but it's, you can tell it's from that young perspective and you use even grammatically he, he wouldn't speak perfectly and I love that mm. you have that mm. you know what I mean you didn't edit it out mm. because that's how he would say things yeah it's also how I would <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no <laughs> no that's not true but yeah I th- well I have kids and and I I was thinking about like I still have all my stories from when I was a a child and I think reading them again kind of like your thoughts are almost a little bit immortalized you know so I've got all this pile of books that I was writing little stories in and diaries from when I was young I don't know if that's helpful but sometimes I've thought that perhaps some of my thoughts were kind of held there because of that and when you revisit not that I'm Arama but the helpfulness of knowing how a child thinks and talks and, yeah. And I don't use many big words in real life, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so important because often that's where novels fall down and all of the characters speak in the same voice, mm. you know. But mm. your character, and you've got first person, of course, you know, mm. for two of them. So you have, to, you have to have that teenager who's a bit of a lost soul and, you know, feels that he's abandoning his brother for the best reasons and you've got mm. this wee fellow who just wants to put plasters on everybody yeah. to make them yeah. feel better, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think that was um, – do you, do, you, do you think a lot about the dialogue and, you know, the first person and, and how things would be said? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that was important to try and get them right and, and um, differentiate the two of them well. Um, so I mean, I almost wanted to get to the point where I wouldn't have to put their names at the top of the um, of each chapter, but I, I don't. I still, I didn't aim to necessarily do that, but that almost you could get rid of them, and you would hope that someone could still tell who was speaking. But yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it much because I just wanted. I was just like I said, my characters were. I was almost letting them lead so I yeah I felt very they felt very real to me I was very sad when I finished I was very heartbroken because I missed them I missed being with them and um and you'd left some of them in a good place yeah like it would be having after through the trauma you Mm. could see the light it really is a book of hope Mm. and having them at the there is could be people that haven't yeah, but just go la la la. <laughs> just, just <laughs> but there's a point at the end where the, some of them are some of them. That's a good way to put it. Some of them are together, and and that was an important point to get to because I mean a lot of families do go through heartbreak and and terrible things can happen to a family, and then what is left they will pull together, and you know. I mean, things have happened within your family. And, I mean, this is no secret. You've spoken about it, that, you know, characters here based on um, members of your family. When you were writing OA or when you were about to publish it, did you talk to your family? I mean, how, how, did, you, how, how did you make it that they were part of this? Because it's a tough story that you're mm. telling. Um, yeah, I, I talked to them and 
um, if anything, writing the book has drawn some of us closer. So, yeah, and I don't quite know how to answer this, but, but my family just knows how much I've always loved writing. Um, I was doing it from a small, when I was small, they they knew that was my obsession from when I was a little one. I I have letters between me and my sisters, you know. I would write to them all the time, write, write letters to them when they moved away after I, when I was still um, too small to leave home. And um, yeah, and so they... They love me for what I've done with my writing, and they love me for the for 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 the the work that I've done. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How uh, I mean, I work in, in news, and people can get so desensitised and unsympathetic to things, and it's another headline, and it's another you know case of family abuse or another beaten wife or, you know what I mean? And they can, as I say, they can be really judgmental. Mm. But there's something I think that writers can do that, that burrows behind that facade, that the barrier that we put up and all the resentments. And I'm, I'm sure you didn't write this to change society, mm. but I think it's had a great impact as, as people read it and think about it and you force us to think about things that we might... It's like, you know, seeing somebody homeless on, on the road, it's easy to turn away, isn't mm. it? It's easy to pretend they're not there. Mm. Um, but I, I think this is an important book for that reason as well, you know, shining a light in these dark areas that are very uncomfortable mm. to look at. And you must have had some extraordinary responses from people. Yeah, um, I have. I've had some... I've. I've had this one recent that was really lovely um, and it wasn't an extraordinary response in any way but I I was went on the I was having a I was flying to Tauranga and there was a woman beside me on the plane and she was reading my book and it was the first time that I saw that uh, like a, a not not someone who was my family reading it somewhere random and I just was like oh my god my heart was going so crazy and then I was like should I tell her and then I said no don't tell her now because if she doesn't like the book it's a really long flight <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was um I waited and I, but I couldn't I had my own book to read but I couldn't concentrate because I was just like how, trying to grab a idea of what her expression was Make like. Make sure she wasn't speed reading. No. Yeah, and and yeah, so I was the whole time just I did try and do a little like sneaky but I didn't. I didn't. I thought that was rude. But anyway, so I'll just show you. So she was reading it and then we went to land and she she put the book down in her, in her lap and she went like that. And then I was like, I'm going to tell her. <laughs> <laughs> so I went I went <laughs> That's really what I did, and I had the mask on my face. And then I was like, "Do you want me to prove it?" And, yeah, so my, and then you also yeah. photo, yeah. yeah. And I and I did tell her I was having quite a good hair day on that day because I wasn't that the day that we were on the flight. But yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, it was like I'd never seen anyone out in the world reading it, and I just couldn't believe that she was right beside me. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a lovely story. Yeah. So she was across the aisle, actually. So, but, you know, like we are right now. Yeah. It was. It's pretty special. It stuff. was really cool. I, I'm, I mean, did, did you get, have you had emails or texts or conversations at events like this where people have kind of come up to you at the end and, and said, that's, that's my story or that's close to my story or yeah, I've had, you understand, you know? I've had lots of people come up and say that they have, they enjoyed the story so much that it was important to them. Um, I've had emails and um, I get quite a few messages through Facebook and um, Instagram and stuff from from people wanting to say how much they love the book and how special it was to them. Yeah. I do, do you hope that it is is going to be part of what is necessary to, to change attitudes for us to be more understanding, you know, that some people are in an impossible situation? I mean, how can you... Did you talk to people who'd been in that scenario or or remember stories from the family? To, you know, because you write... Isn't that what you wrote, before, what you read before from your new book? That mm. That's incredibly powerful writing about a, an impossible situation that most of us would hope to never be in. Yeah. I have people very close to me that have, you know, been in situations like that and are in situations like this. So I can't say that I go around... Um, hoping that someone will tell me their, some stranger will tell me their story, is is that I have enough people close to me that have suffered terribly. And most of us, most of you in this room also do. You know, I don't know whether everyone is aware of it or not, but, you know, most people have... A family member or or someone close to them that is suffering from something like like domestic violence. It's it's so well hidden, isn't it? Why 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 this comes back to Fakamawa shame we were talking about before, doesn't it often? It's that people don't want to tell because they're too ashamed to mm. to admit it. And mm. that's how can we help them past that, you know? Yeah. That's I think it's just important not to ever judge a situation. Um, I'm certainly not able to give advice on this sort of thing, but I just think it's um, it's such a complicated thing. And 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 if someone was to come to you and they needed a bed for the night and they were in a bad state and the next day they're going back to that bad situation, you, you just have to be kind of accepting of that. That's one of the things, you know, that you would never... Yeah, that's going a wee bit off track maybe, but that just because someone would leave for one night doesn't mean that they're going to leave forever. Mm. I'm going to d- divert as well. Just yeah. To, no, no, no. But we've, we've, we've looked at that in, in a lot of depth. Because one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was the place of Te Māori in your life. And I was reading an article where you were, you were saying that you, I wanted to get a description of your Māori English dictionary. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lovely story, you know, mm. how you came to it. Yeah. I have this um, book that I tried to write as a child and I was directly... I was using t- um, this my Māori dictionary 
to directly translate words from English to Māori. And that, now when I look at it, it doesn't <laughs> obviously make any sense at all. Um, yeah, and I had... But it, it was it's cute. It's beautiful to have now. It makes me feel very good when I look at it because it just confirms to me that this has always been something that has been important to me. It's not, um, which is fine if you come come along later and then te reo Māori is l- important to you later in life, that's also good. But f- for me, I do feel a bit happy that from a child I, I already wanted to be able to use te reo Māori. And I, I still struggle, like... Um, of course, I'm not. I I only have a few kupu. I only use them peppered. I don't have many sentences at all. But you know what I do have is important to me, and it always was. And with yeah. your with your own tamariki, with your own kids, are better. Yeah, yeah. are they? <laughs> yeah, they're good. <laughs> they really they correct me. Lots. <laughs> uh, uh, we, the, the festival circuit. I mean, of course, you're in huge demand. With the success and interviews and journalists, you know, I think I've interviewed you at least twice um, over the time. Does that, after a while, I was just thinking about trying to study um, books that you love at university, and sometimes when you analyse them and you know talk about them too much or think about them too much, some of the joy and the magic's kind of sucked out of them. Do you know what I mean? Did you find? How did you find getting the same questions from journalists over and over again and the same kind of things? Or, or did you? Were you able to still love? the book and, and not be too distracted by all the attention? Um, I feel like I've, I've separated a little bit from the book and um, and in the lead up to something like this I kind of feel just a bit nervous and then I get here and I see all your lovely faces and it feels good, I feel happy here but at the t- same time it's kind of like... Oh. And afterwards, I'll probably be like, "Oh my God, you just said so many stupid things," and I'll beat myself up about it. But don't, don't you dare. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think every time, even if there's a couple of the same questions, every feeling is a bit different. And so far, that's been true. Um, tonight reminds me that, of that because I was I was thinking, "Oh gosh." doing this again and I'm back to OE and now I feel a little bit of a new energy sitting here now so thank you. Oh my pleasure I mean I think sharing your new work that's why we started talking about the new because when you're doing these sessions you're very aware of the fact that sometimes you're write, you're talking to a writer whose whose head is in a very different place you know the book we're talking about it had its origins a long mm. time ago and it's been out for a couple of years and it's very fresh and real to me mm. but you, you've you've moved not entirely on, but you're yeah. in a, a new section. Um, and uh, Hannah, who I spoke to this morning, she's written the second book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, and wow. it's about to be published in July, you yeah. know, she's a very productive year. So I think, I think that, you know, that is, you've got to be mindful of, of where you're at and, and your, your head is firmly there, but it feels like the fellowship's come at a good time mm, for you. And you can concentrate yeah. on it. It's an amazing fellowship. I just, um, yeah, like I said, I am really ruined for... Real life. I have a lovely office, and um, yeah, and the city's uh, Dunedin's an amazing place. You guys are, whoever's from Dunedin, you're real lucky. You're from yeah, Dunedin. Yeah, hell yeah. It's a cool place. Um, yeah, and it, 
like it's already May and I'm like, whoa, that's almost half a year gone. But, yeah, I'm having time to work and, and I'm enjoying working. Yeah, Is your aim to finish the, the new novel by the end of the year? Is that where you're heading? Um, I'll, I would definitely have... My aim in the beginning was to have a second draft and I don't know how many drafts I'll need to go through with it. How many drafts for Ole? Uh, I think like 10. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard higher numbers than that. So, yeah, you know. well, I think every time, I, almost every time you change a sentence, it's almost really a new draft, sort of. But I don't know how people measure their new drafts really because you're just kind of sliding over the whole thing again and again. So... When I say a second draft, I mean probably yeah. I don't I I don't know how people measure these drafts anyway, but True. it'll it'll get wrung out, and then I'll have I'll I'll probably expect another couple of years after that. I don't know. We can't wait that long. It's just saying. <laughs> well, look, I, I promised you um, faithfully time for your questions, and it's a, a wonderful opportunity, honestly. Um, this is what I do for a living, and I wouldn't want to do anything else, is to be able to talk to creative people um, about their work, people I admire. So please, um, we've got look, we have a hand up here already. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll just get a microphone to you, if that's all right, just so everyone can... Um, I always thought we, we need ushers on rollerblades or something to get it around. It might be a degree of... Co- uh, it's just over there in the corner. Look, enthusiastic hand up. Fantastic. Hi there. I would love it if you could tell us um, just an overview of what happened between when you dropped your manuscript off in Wellington at the ladies' office yep. um, to when you were holding your book in your hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> could you fill us in a little bit? Yep, sure. So I dropped it off and then I went to the pub. Nah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I dropped it off and then I um, waited about, I think it was around about a month. And and um, so Mary McCullum, my publisher, she said that she she did like it, but there was she had some issues with it. So I needed to work on those issues, and which she gave me some points. And I'm I'm not going to tell you what they were because then that makes me seem less magical. But um, <laughs> So I worked on those points and then um, I tried to do it quite quickly so that she would know that I was willing to, like I was really enthusiastic to work on anything that she wanted me to. So I did it pretty quick, like within three weeks I'd worked, them, worked on them. I sent it back, then she said that because it was quite soon after she had read it, she she had a new reader read it, which was Renee. Um, yeah. So and then Renee um, read the manuscript, and she uh, persuaded <laughs> Mary. Well, she supported Mary and in, in publishing it. She thought perhaps perhaps this should be published. <laughs> She was a good choice, though, wasn't she? Because she she has written so beautifully herself. Yes, about yeah. women in peril, you yes. know, in their own home. Yeah. so that was she was a match. fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she sent me a, a wonderful, some wonderful feedback as well. So, and after that, oh, sorry. So then we get to that point where yes, it's going to be published, and then um, it was, I think, almost two. I could be. I may have forgotten some timeline, but. 
it was at least a year of then working out doing editing and then finally one day I had my book in my hand and I was really doing editing right up to the very last week almost was week was before. that sat- was that satisfying for you I mean did you feel that with every change you made it was improving or was it were you getting frustrated you know what I mean it's no I could have done it forever I really? could have I actually I loved I was desperate to hold the book in my hand but also I think people often think of editing as being just this very boring sort of go through and make sure that the grammar's all right and but that wasn't my focus it was still really creative editing is was where some of my, the best parts of my creativity came in because I had this I had this story you know the bones I'm um, not the bones it was really a obviously it was a book by then because it was still it was only being edited but there was real creativity going on through the editing process so it's not just boring stuff yeah I hope that answered your question cool (laughs) but but it's not always like that though I mean I I have talked to editors and to writers and and every word is their baby and they can fight the editors every step of the way thou shalt not pass thou shalt (laughs) not touch anything here so I think that's if you entered into it with that that view, it probably was a great relation, a very important relationship, isn't it, yeah. between uh, a novelist, you know, a writer and an editor. Yeah, and if you've worked for Lee Scanlon, who was my chief <laughs> yeah. editor then, you, she was putting my work on the table in front of me with scrolls cut through it, and she was like, so I read this in sentence, and, and so I, I was t- taught, you know, to really harden up to the fact that you don't write a book without an editor. You don't. Yeah, without that help and without, yeah, no, 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 I don't think, could be not right, but I don't think anyone writes a really good book without an editor's help. I had someone rip up my story in front of me in the 4ZB newsroom, <laughs> and they were junior to me. So really oh, really? Yeah. I know. Oh, that's no, it's so all right. rude. All right, I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, we've got some more some more. Questions? We've got um, over here, please, and then one behind. So the lady in blue and then one behind. Thank you. I just wondered what you do with your 20,000 words that you get rid of. Just. Could you give them away? Or? Um, oh, like you, you want to have them? <laughs> <laughs> they would bore you to death. But um, I just actually just deleted them. Yeah. Look that. Did you get that palpable? Oh, yeah. No. Oh, are they still on the hard drive of your computer somewhere? No, I deleted them. Oh, oh. yep. Ouch. All right. If they if they're that good, they'll come back. But I don't think they were. <laughs> good question. Thank you. And I think it's back there. A woman respond on the plane. Oh, yeah, so she oh. was, I think, yeah. I just thought the stroke kind of told that story really beautifully. She was, um, she was just like, really? And then I'm not going to, no, because that's weird if I make it. Like, she wasn't, she didn't make a big scene. She was just really like, wow. And then she did look at the photo and she made a little quick check. <laughs> And then I signed her book and we walked through um, the airport together and had a little corridor. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is <laughs> special, and you'll be able to have this relationship with Becky very soon because you'll be signing um, books out the back. Uh, and I think that is really special. I think mm. it's, it is. It's, a, it's an extraordinary moment. Yeah, it was. I love that story. Yeah. Um, probably got time for one more question over here. Good evening. Thank you for this very forthcoming talk. Um, do you have any superstitions or rituals with your writing? Are there oh. things you do that oh. help you write or don't do when you write? Well, so I think since I have had the Robert Burns Fellowship, so I have a little bit more space. So writing is my everything. Whereas when I was writing Owe, it was more like, get to the table, just get it in before, you know, after work. And and now I have more space. So in my um, office, I now, I have, I say a karakia when I get into my office and I have my, I've put my pipiha at this top of my first draft and I just, I read that and I have, um, so they're not, and it, so they're not really, but I don't really have any superstitions, I don't think. I feel like I want one now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if that's disappointing. It, one will come to me in the middle of the night that I do have this superstition and I'm going to be gutted that I couldn't tell you. But I think starting yeah. with a karakia is actually beautiful. Karakia, yeah. I have a karakia, which I say when I come into my office. So, yeah. C- could you share it with us or is it very personal? It's not, but I won't. I won't do it because I, I use it, I have it written there to help me. Yeah. Oh, nice. So even though by now, with me doing it every day, I should be able to, I still feel like I might not be able to. No, <laughs> this, is, this is not about pressure at all. Okay. Um, I mentioned before that uh, you're very welcome to, to meet Becky. She'll sign, sign her books for you. And if you've had any questions that we didn't get to ask or you're too um, whakama, too embarrassed to ask, then by all means, um, take that opportunity. Um, she's a delight to, to talk to. Awe is available at the UBS Otago Festival um, bookstore. And I do believe that uh, David uh, Eagleton, our current poet laureate, is having his book launch in about half an hour or something like that too. And everyone's welcome, which is very cool. Uh, so join me, if you would, in thanking um, Becky for uh, this wonderful hour. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.